Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm super excited to welcome David Fuller uh, to the program today. David, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, looking forward to it, Greg. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to start with a big thank you to David Fuller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I want to thank you for is your uh, pioneering media leadership around Rebel Wisdom. Uh, this really was unbelievably impactful, I think, to the community. I think you picked up and had a sense for what was happening in the Jordan Peterson phenomena and then the intellectual dark web and created a particular kind of space that, well, now is growing and alive in beautiful ways. And so I just want you to I just want you to know how much I appreciated that, how much I followed that and been deeply uh, and, and I, I should thank you as well, Greg, for being uh, one of our original members and <laughs> have kind of backed us. So uh, we'll, we'll say the feelings mutual. All right. Well, it's definitely been, you know, uh, there's a lot going on and a lot that needs to happen. And I think lead, uh, Rebel Wisdom has been a leading voice in all of that and a leading place to dialogue and, uh, and explore it. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. You know, and so I guess one of the things, you know, we haven't talked a huge amount uh, but I, I know certainly listening to a lot of conversations, but I'd love to hear, um, you know, uh, what, what is your perspective on what you tracked and followed these days and what, where is it? And then I'd like to evolve into where, you know, is becoming, uh, where you think mm-hmm. it's going, but maybe we can start with just, uh, that journey for you. Yeah. Yeah. There was a word that you, or a framing that you used at the beginning that I think, I'm interested to pick up on, which is where you said this community. I'm sort of, I think it might be interesting for us to sort of maybe outline where we, what we see that as. Totally. There's lots of, there's lots of different um, people in different kind of overlapping Venn diagrams of different intellectual traditions, different embodiment traditions. Um, You can kind of use the, the kind of game B network Yep. which of which the IDW intellectual dark web was kind of certainly a Venn diagram of that. Yep. Um, and then the integral communities and the sort of meta modern term that's used for some people, like all of this is, is kind of like, and the sense making, I think we've probably, we've probably done as much as we can to kind of push the term sense making. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yep. And and because I feel like that's the bit that I personally feel called to hold yeah. in want of for want of a better word. Like my background is as a journalist. Right. Um always slightly frustrated with the narrowness of the perspective of the mainstream legacy really? media. <laughs> Believe it or not, I know it's a, it's a very. That's a, that's a, I got to take notes here, David. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a that's a really kind of out there perspective nowadays. That not many people would agree with me there, but but stay with me, stay with me. All I'm right, trying to all right. Why. I'm, I'm trying to stay focused. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, although I feel even even with that, I feel that I'm actually the person trying to hold the other perspective as well, and not throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms yep. of the the values of journalism. And the values that are still held within the the old and sort of increasingly failing structure. Like I think that I think that critique can be over can be overplayed. Absolutely. And one of my criticisms of the kind of galaxy brain um, mm-hmm. epistemic authority types is that I think they can overdo the criticisms of the mainstream too much and collapse into a kind of dogmatism on the other side. Totally. Um, I, th- I think we would share that. Probably. I mean, my I've been 
baked into the <laughs> into the oven of the blue church by you know and i'm a, i've lived inside the academy uh and have that strong identity you know it's only recently that i got sort of jettisoned out of the standard professorial uh identity and so i have a particular uh, affinity i think i share with you both the deep critique, but at the same time, a bit of a conservatism that says, wait a minute, you know, you can't just rewrite everything here uh, and how to mm. bridge uh, from uh, our history to our future in a particular way. Yeah, and I think that term that you used, blue church, I think that's been really, really powerful as a heuristic that a lot of people have picked up on, but I feel there's a danger, it's a, it's a brilliant heuristic, it's, it yep. helps illustrate something in the landscape, it's a mental model, I guess, Yep. but I think if you take it to its, if you take it to to it, uh, its fullest extent, I think it ends up leading to something like nihilism. Yep. And I think it's a dangerous, it's dangerous used in excess. Absolutely. And I think it often is used in excess mm-hmm. um, by by people. And that that that's a concern that I have is is when these these mental models start becoming quite dogmatic and quite start becoming quite simplistic. Um, and just to just to return to your first question, like mm-hmm. my interest in Jordan Peterson, my interest in the intellectual dark web is always where are these ideas and these deeper frames of reference and these deeper perspectives and these more interesting kind of um, ways of looking at the world? Where are they overlapping with the mainstream? Yep. What are what are the the pinch points? What are the pressure points on the culture that that you can see? the failure of one system and the potential for another one to start poking through. And that's where I'm particularly interested. That's what I was interested in with Jordan Peterson. Yep. Um, Like this sort of sense of, wow, this guy is about to go viral Mm. and (laughs) pretty much putting all of my chips on him in 2017 and saying this, this perspective that he's holding the sort of deeper story of the mythos of Western culture is exactly what we've all forgotten. Right. But and I would still summarize Jordan Peterson's philosophy as necessary, but not sufficient. Beautiful. Yep. And that insufficiency, I think, is where I'm interested now to explore with Jordan mm. Peterson. Yep. Like, where, where, how do we take what he has brought and articulated so incredibly well and move mm-hmm. beyond it? Yep. Whether or not he himself is able to do that for physical reasons, for um, temperamental reasons and all of that, all of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. And also why did like the intellectual dark web at first was conceived as this sort of space beyond um, potentially beyond the culture war, although I think it was even at the beginning was, was mm. in some ways a reactionary movement, but yeah. I would say a reaction to something that needed to be reacted to. Right. And I've also been very, I've been critical and I've tried to be a critical friend to that to the people within that and the the, the, mm-hmm. the wider kind of the wider movement that I think was encapsulated within that that idea, which certainly took off. Like yep. the, the concept as a meme really took off. Totally. Like there was a need for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did see that stagnate very quickly. Yeah. I think there was some kind of performative contradiction in the fact that it was named as dark. The moment it was named, it kind of died. Right. But I've always been trying to say, okay, where is the insufficiency? Where is Where's the potential for using my journalistic kind of eye and, and experience of saying, okay, how can we take these, right. these topics where there are a lot of eyes on them yep. and there's a lot of potential kind of value and potential right. mimetic traction in the culture right. and then 
use that to kind of push push people along or push the car not push people because that feels a bit manipulative but no. push the, the push the, the conversation, conversation along yeah, okay. and incorporate sort of more frames which i think we've done since the beginning of rebel wisdom and had some success in bringing all of these different totally. frames and communities together which is also something i want to do more of now we've just started launching a whole new series of events mm. called showcases okay. where we're bringing in so we've got now more capacity to have more voices mm-hmm. more people more thinkers on mm. so for example we've got hansi uh, daniel gortz coming on okay. soon all right Good. Uh, for the uh-huh. meta modern perspective and i want to i want to start consciously bringing in more of intensifying the venn diagram totally. of, of these different thinkers and different communities yeah yeah. So uh, that parallels my view only in, you know, in a, a slightly different position. So, you know, I'm in the deep seated academic world uh, and then uh, have for, you know, 20 years then built a particular critique and position of academic psychology uh, and psychotherapy. I, you know, has somebody trained exactly as Jordan Peterson trained as a clinician and a theoretical psychologist. I've also then been fascinated by what he brings uh, and the the cultural phenomenological reaction uh, to that. Uh, uh, in fact, I got into some serious fights with my program. I, I was a director of my program and then I wasn't by volunteer, but then the culture of the program shifted. Jordan Peterson comes out and like, oh, he's a great guy we should take a look at. Well, not everyone thought so. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. We obviously should be at a mature place to hold uh, Jordan Peterson. Anybody that creates a you know simplistic progressive left narrative of what he is, he's a transphobe or whatever, I thought would be just diagnostic of, of not good sense making. And I thought our community would be able to agree with that. I was wrong. <laughs> we would not able to agree with that. And that actually created some serious sparks in um, my life, uh, significant sparks in my life, um, and shifted my perspective. It really was the, it was his, my little microcosm of debate um, was a, and a few other things was a catalyst for me to shift my perspective on what the, where the mainstream culture is. And then tracking the sense-making systems from my vantage point um, was fascinating, it, both in terms of because it opened up uh, some of the serious limitations, some of the missing perspectives. And then at the same time, um, you know, I've been harping for a long time uh, about how to get the equation right in relationship to the move from physics to biology, to psychology, into the social sciences that then affords us a view um, for revitalizing the soul and spirit in a particular way. Um, And so I thought it was all beautiful and then it went all to hell (laughs) in some ways. Uh, But at the same time, inside the wake, and this is why I'm so appreciative of of what Rebel Wisdom is about, inside the wake of that now has spurred all sorts of possible emergent collective intelligences. And, you know, John and I, John Verbeke and I are really, you know, deep friends now in relationship to this. And my discovery of his walk up the cognitive science philosophy mountain to see a broad cognitive, integrative cognitive science view, and then to be able to sync up so profoundly uh, his view and mine in a way that then affords really uh, coherent naturalistic ontology. Um, that's a that's super exciting, and I believe that that's part of the equation about um, what are some of the things that are going to happen next. So it's really fascinating to watch your journalistic view uh, and my academic view sort of in parallel there. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that was a Brett Weinstein Weinstein line that all truths must reconcile. 
Yep, I'm a, I'm a coherentist and, and I definitely uh, am part of that frame. So a coherentist is constantly looking for uh, each person's playing their different musical instruments, very much like an integral perspective around partial truths. And then the capacity to see the music in relationship to the noise is my sort of intuitive orientation. Yeah, which, which is why at the time I described the intellectual dark web as a nascent integral conversation. Right. I'd heard, I'd, I'd, I'd spoken to Brett quite a bit and I'd heard him express that. And I'd seen in some of the initial meetings, this sense of an alignment between different worldviews that yep. Jordan Peterson was talking about the shadow, but it seemed to align really well with Brett's understanding of evolutionary biology and kind of our sure. primal drives and this sense of, and that was a possibly kind of overly optimistic perspective at the beginning to believe that this could be a could develop into uh, that conversation that sort of there's an amazing piece uh, quote by Robert Bella from Beyond Belief mm. that mm. Richard Tarnas quotes at the beginning of the epilogue for Passion of the Western Mind mm -hmm. which talks about we may be on the verge of a new worldview yep. that realizes we have to switch between different imaginative vocabularies and that the temptation to to coalesce into one single literal interpretation is always there, but we need to guard against it. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote. Absolutely. Um, but it's something that's really driven me in my kind of intellectual exploration. And, and then I, by, I keep it, I keep it uh, close. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I still think for no. me, Tarnas it had such an influence on me when I was yeah. at, at uni, and I still feel like he articulated it as well as I've, as I've heard yet. Totally. And, and I asked, I spoke, I spoke to John Bavaki recently and John said, yeah, he feels that his thought and Richard's overlap really well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this I mean, sense that like the, the sense that the masculine rational intellect has built prisons for itself and it's become a kind of catch 22 of atomism and um, kind of rationalism yep. makes perfect sense. And the only way out is this sort of, leap of faith back to the intuitive, back to the, the feminine intuitive realms, for want of a better word. And that, that really feels absolutely true. Yeah. Um, right. But it, but it has to be a kind of, it has to be an integral in, include and, and transcend rather than a rejection of, which is often totally. what it is from a kind of more new age spiritual perspective. Right. Although, although my path is totally along those lines, but it's slightly different in the sense that I basically diagnose what the problem is. Uh, so what mm. the problem is what I call the enlightenment gap. So the, the parallel between first Newton and Kant and the capacity of the enlightenment sense-making, especially the scientific philosophical sense-making system of human phenomenological epistemology and matter in motion, the enlightenment can't get that shit together, <laughs> mm. okay, basically. Um, and you see it appear in what I call the problem of psychology. Okay, so the problem of psychology is the inability to define what we mean by the science of mind and behavior or whatever. Why, why is psychology the science of, well, mind or behavior or mind and behavior or something? <laughs> hmm. okay? And yet the field can never define itself like it gets its footing in the you know, 19th century. Uh, and then you get all of these different paradigms. Okay, you get the paradigm wars. So that by 19, mid 1920s, Lev Vygotsky is like, listen, guys, <laughs> our field doesn't make any sense. So we did 1920. 
And then it's called the crisis uh, and the crisis never gets resolved. And it's like, well, why? Uh, and the really is, is the philosophical architecture, scientific philosophical architecture of the grammar, the cultural grammar of the enlightenment can't figure it out. It doesn't have the uh, wherewithal. And so then what it does is it, it breaks and creates dualisms and then it creates particulate reductionisms uh, mm. and it eviscerates the, the much aspect of lived experience, especially as it tries to cut the legs out from underneath the traditional Western Christian worldview, which obviously is what um, uh, Peterson is pointing out. So, so the key is that they don't understand what they're looking at and there is a way to solve that problem. And if it does, then it opens up the floodgates to a totally new relationship to being in the world, so. Hmm. And who do you feel articulates that the best? Apart from you. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the space is beginning to articulate that very nicely. I mean, I, I certainly think, I mean, certainly I guess John Verveke would be the person that uh, has the view that's most similar to mine. Um, he and I joke around about what is cognitive science relative to psychology and all of that stuff. And if we had gotten psychology right, we wouldn't have a separate field called cognitive science. Um, but that's the, yeah, my, my journey is, listen, there's a bridge between the science of psychology, both basic uh, and human, into psychotherapy. And if we can bridge that with coherence, then, then that's the energy flow that awakens uh, the system and releases a lot of the broken fragments that then have created so much of the difficulties in sense-making. Mm. So that's, a, you know, that's a, to me, it's super fascinating to watch the whole conversation unfold, uh, to be in parallel with that, and then to, to see uh, the potentials that are now, I think are in the process of being realized and now sort of like, uh, you know, I mentioned to you, I'm hooking up with like uh, uh, Bruce Alderman and Layman Pascal on the integral stage. Uh, this, this journey has brought me back into integral myself. So in the mid 2000s, when I was doing my work, I was, you know, I was probably just too much anchored into a modern atheistic scientific perspective to really appreciate Wilbur. Um, and I was then a little hard on him as, as not being uh, precise in what in the task and was then more sympathetic to the traditional academic view as to why he doesn't get the attention. Now I've done not a 180 because I always appreciated him, but I've come back to Wilbur so much more in relationship to what his critique was and what he's offering and then uh, how I saw the integral world and, and how it's positioned in this metamodern space. Uh, and now to be interacting with like the integral stage folks, Lehman and uh, Bruce, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I really... I think some of the thing that's going to happen is this bridge between the unified uh, frame that I offer, uh, this conciliant frame that I offer at the scientific perspective, and then bridging really into the pra live practices and the integrative bridge to the East uh, and all of that in the integral world. And I think that the, if that gets coherent and synced up and, and with cognitive science and all that, it's a, the, we can actually start the sense-making process and, and get to the new uh, new phase that you have envisioned in terms of what Jordan Peterson started. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm feeling my way through as much as anything. I kind of go on intuition most of the time. Right. But I, but I do, I think it was Jamie wheel who said that in his view, most of the people who, I think he said most of the people who are breaking trail are running an integral OS. Yeah. 
which I thought was really, uh, and he said the best thing to do is to, to learn all about integral and then completely forget it. Yeah, I love that. I heard him make, I think it was on your talk yeah. or whatever. I certainly heard him say that at some point and I, I thought that was a brilliant frame. Yeah, frame. because if you don't, then you end up in this little hole where you're you're basically trying, you you get stuck in the language, you get stuck in the map, you get stuck in a in a whole set of concepts that, that start to kind of narrow down your ability to talk to people outside it. And that's definitely the case. Totally. But But I think... Now, hopefully, there's a chance for that to to, to really flourish. And right. I know, I know, for example, that that both Brett and Eric Weinstein, when I first met them, were very dubious towards Integral. They'd heard of it, and they were not. They're kind of like, no, Wilbur, not for me. Yeah. And then over time, they they were more open to it. I think they okay. they, and and that for me was the. The thing that was essentially missing from the intellectual dark web conversation was that integral map mm. to be able to say, okay, you're anti-green. Mm-hmm. That's what's brought this, this mimetic construct together is a realization that green has gone toxic. Yep. And it's a necessary process to do that. Totally. But then you need to push on to what is second tier yep. and what is what is integral, what are the benefits of green, and don't get stuck in just the reaction which you saw happen in you saw happen in real time like uh, there was a there was a Ruben report show with and I, I would say for me Brett and Eric are the more interesting thinkers they're coming from the left mm-hmm. they are I think they have a naturally integral perspective um, mm-hmm. an interesting point there about whether you're kind of embodying and our kind of emotional attachments and how they kind of trip us up at, at key mm-hmm. moments. But I'd say that they're happens. Definitely, <laughs> they're definitely intellectually integral second tier. And you saw, as I said on this, on the Ruben report, you saw Brett, no, sorry, Eric and Jordan Peterson. Eric was getting a little bit pissed off with Jordan Peterson because he could just feel Peterson was continuing to go into kind of just, just naming the problem. Yep. And just kind of bitching about the problem, and Eric was like, "Okay, let's let's try and find solutions. Yep. How do we solve the the trans pronoun problem? Well, we know that intersex exists. Therefore, there is a t- category that does not fit Clearly. in. Therefore, can we not use that as a?" Co-? And he was coming up with some suggestions, yep. like his suggestions, um, but feeling in you could just feel this frustration that he was like Peterson's just going on this well worn anti green yep. anti pomo track, totally. and you can ride that you can ride that all the way to the bank as I think many people have, have realized. <laughs> and, and that's another interest I have is what are the failure conditions of the alternative media landscape right. that are all about these incentive structures. It's all about giving the audience what they already know. Totally. It's all about, yeah, audience capture and how do we guard against that? And the, the clear examples of people who haven't like, like Dave Rubin, for example, yep. and arguably, arguably Jordan Peterson, although I think he, at his best, has the capacity to go beyond. At his worst, I think just just goes into a well worn groove of. I, I mean, it's here the way I see these folks uh, is that I mean, once you get baked into a particular academic frame, so you know, once once Peterson dives in and gets maps of meaning, maps of meaning is deep, interesting, it built off of old stuff, and then he will frame his world view through that lens, and that lens is going to be pretty much baked in. Okay, Uh, and rightfully so in many ways, because it's an advance on where he comes before. 
Um, and I think the same thing is basically true. Of, you know, if you do Eric Weinstein, you know, geometric unity, how does that manage? He's going to follow a mathematical physical train. You're going to get his brother, you know, doing a particular angle on evolutionary biology. What you'll get is you'll get the experts and then they'll refer to their frame. And then, but that frame is going to, you know, as for a mature adult uh, professional, that frame is going to be very, very solid. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that necessarily in a good sense. It can be in a good sense, but it also it's going to be very difficult to undo um, unless mm. there's a real clear articulation of what the problem is. And then what's the thing that comes next? So they will be operating from what I would call their frame of justification. Okay. Mm. And the frame so they, of justification. They built their own, they built their own paradigm by by hand. Exactly. Which is that when you do that as a professional, it's a wonderful thing. And then you'll stay there with lots of justification, investment, and dissonance. <laughs> that reminds me of something that Eric said in conversation with Sam Harris, which I thought was really interesting because mm -hmm. he said, because Sam Harris has obviously got this, um, what he would consider like completely common sense perspective about the world. Like he's mm -hmm. laid it out in the moral landscape. He's laid it yeah. out in these books. Can't really understand why other people don't, don't agree with him. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Eric said, I think you've built... I think you've built by hand a car that only you can drive. Mm -hmm. Well, that which which was very, very clever as well, and that was in the context of that Sam thinks you can do away with religion because of the the the, the frameworks that he's laid out in his books and the frameworks yeah. that inform him. Mm -hmm. And that or that can't you see that means we don't need religion anymore? And Eric was saying, you built something that you can drive, but no. Very few other people can. Some others will. Totally. But but the amazing thing about religion is that it offers this these different levels of meaning or different levels of engagement for the people at the developmental levels of they need the thou shalt nots. Totally. And yep. and that's yeah. Which also frames the the task of people like John Bavaki and maybe yourself if you're thinking of what goes in the the whole left by religion. Uh huh. Well, when you realize like how many functions that structure was doing and how long it took to evolve really gives you totally. a sense of the, the size of the task that you might be taking on. Right. Uh, Sam Harris has got serious holes in his common sense naturalism. You know, these are major holes. I mean, I end up calling my scientific approach the tree of knowledge um, <laughs> for, for precisely because we need a dialectical relation. And, and it becomes then the garden philosophy because I'm following the archetype. You know, there's a there's a following of archetype. And, and basically what we need, we yes, we need the logos of the day of science. OK, and then we definitely need a pragmatic well-being orientation that he gives in moral landscape. Harris does. But seriously, you really don't think people are connecting to the mythopoetic narratives, you know, that guide the spirit in a particular way. We're just going to we're all going to pray to Sam Harris <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, that's not the way it works. Yeah. That's. Yeah, there's an interest. I don't know if you heard he just came out with a new nine minute um, podcast that. It was kind of the most pissed off I think I've heard him. And he was kind of saying, if you meditated hard enough, you'd understand I was right about everything. Okay. Well, fantastic. I guess um, I'll go back to the drawing board. <laughs> it was interesting. Listen, he doesn't, I mean, the first thing I look at, so in and I, 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 and I want to say now, like, I love, I, 
I think Sam Harris is totally. a really he's holding a really essential part of the mimetic Absolutely. landscape. No doubt. And holding it holding it with with a real skill and a level of insight in many of the things that he's saying. Totally. But I mean, my, the, my insider academic view just asks, well, do you solve the enlightenment gap or not? The enlightenment gap is, do you understand the relationship between mind and matter and science and social knowledge? Those are the two things. And he doesn't, you know, <laughs> I mean, he, he doesn't have a frame for that. I mean, it's fine and it's beautiful. And the atheistic naturalistic view that he gives and the way he bridges scientific neuroscience into psychology adequately, doesn't have a really good understanding of the social sciences, but he also has a good understanding of meditation from a naturalistic view. He's a beautiful thinker and writer. But it's, but, it's, but it's constrained and it has holes. Um, he doesn't, for example, the first insight I had, new insight, 1996, is the justification systems hypothesis, okay? And that's, the, that's what turns us from primates into people. It's the way language changes us to be justifiers, all right? And we have to understand, if you don't understand the way language feeds back and then creates us as reason-giving creatures that then build systems of justification, um, which he doesn't. Uh, if you don't, you're missing a gigantic piece of the puzzle. Um, and then as that piece of the puzzle gives rise to the tree of knowledge piece of the puzzle, which actually is a coherent naturalistic ontology. Um, uh, it fills in the gap of, of what E.O. Wilson writes. So, so Sam Harris is basically an E.O. Wilson consilience. So E.O. Wilson, sociobiologist, writes consilience, and, and it's a naturalistic view. And it's, it's basically what I share, but Wilson himself says, you can't get really from a, a biology into neuroscience into basic si science of psychology, mind cognitive stuff into the human cultural world. You can't, no one knows how to do that and solve all the philosophical problems in relationship to that. The, the pathway through what I call the fourth joint point isn't realized. And if you don't have the fourth joint point in terms of a sense-making system, you, you know, give it up. I, I, I mean, you can get a lot of stuff, but you're not going to have the holistic picture, and Sam doesn't have that. But anyway, yeah, so that, but he has a very important view. I, I like, I, I'm very influenced by him. I'm very influenced by uh, his writing, his approach to meditation. It's just, you know, it's good, but there's a lot better out there. <laughs> yeah, and that speaks to the difficulty of evolving your thoughts once you Right. Well, firstly, once you've established something that feels complete to you, but also then compounded by when you have a major public profile and you are getting so much low quality criticism that it's very hard then to hear any high quality criticism within that, right. um, which, which is something that, that Sam and... Eric were musing on at a town hall event not that, not that long ago mm. where they were saying, yeah, it felt like they were getting worse and worse and worse the, with the more criticism that they were getting and the more profile they were getting. Oh, interesting. Um, which is an interesting challenge, I think. Yeah, to, to anyone who's in, who's in that position, I, I think it's, it's, another, it's another one of the kind of confounding factors of the alternative media landscape that we don't really know. Like, how do you deal with something when... How do you deal with it when you've got an almost infinite amount of feedback and then your cognitive biases start to just um, totally that's a completely sift like without you even realizing it you're you're sifting for one side or the other you're either looking for stuff um, yep. that 
makes you feel bad or makes you feel good. Um, yeah. So, so what was it? I was watching, listening to a Sam Harris podcast and he was, someone was talking about Twitter and their notifications and how many notifications they, I think it was Tristan Harris and Sam kind of very non-plus said, but it's always 99 plus, isn't it? Right. Every time you look, right? Well, it is for you. I got four notifications yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Well, right. right. I think this is a really actually, maybe we can stay here for a little while because our joint perspectives on this may be very valuable because it it is absolutely the case that we need, we need to be very, I, I, you know, I've had a very mixed reaction to watching people, somebody like Jordan Peterson, do what he does. Um, watching myself, I'm like, there are times that I'm like, listen, I know a lot more than he does. Why the hell is everyone paying attention to him? And then there's a lot of other times I do not want people to be paying attention to me. Okay. Precisely because of the terrifying uh, reality of audience capture and what you then become beholden to. And then everybody projects all your stuff on you. And I love just working by myself in relationship to this. Um, and so what the, I certainly see and sense the evolution of the, what you become as a media force or personality and the, and the social forces of audience capture and the distributed media networks that then get surrounded, like where people get defined against you in certain ways, and then you have to defend yourself. Um, it's a very, it's a frightening thing uh, from mm. my vantage point. Uh, and, and then the question then is how to shepherd that process so that it has the right emergent evolutionary, you know, elements that allow it to continue to progress and grow. And you can learn like from the intellectual dark web, you can look at that and be like, all right, or the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, like what was the growth potential? And then what did it freeze? And then how would you potentially imagine uh, counterbalancing that from like a media journal, uh, cultural perspective? That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm interested in in them now is mostly from that perspective is where did the, and it's, it's about whether you're creating novelty mm. and at some point it's, I think there's a kind of calcification process that comes in mm-hmm. partly because you've expressed so much on, you've become established with certain perspectives. If you're active on Twitter and you've got a big following, you've probably had high profile spats with various people around right. certain topics and you see both the sort of tribes being um, the tribes being kind of policed and the, the, the borders of the tribes being policed in real time. Mm-hmm. And also you become established and identified with certain positions that then very difficult to, to. So you kind of coalesce around your worst psychology and possibly your worst ideas or at least kind of not your best ideas. Yes. And that's a problem I don't think that. And that's where I feel like you, you then get this deadening, you get this sort of sense of there's nothing new really coming. And I think we sense that at a, at a really visceral, subliminal level, mm-hmm. like when someone's potentially going into new territory or when you're just like, you, you find someone who you love on a podcast and you listen right, to them, right. you listen to them, and then eventually you're like, yeah, I think I've heard everything now. Right, you know, this is start old news, I call it. Right? Yeah. yeah, and... I mean, Samo Berger has the term live player to refer to that, that I think is really useful. Um, and I think we sense on a, and I think that for me, that was what was really interesting about Jordan Peterson, especially mm. his lectures going back to like the Maps of Meaning series from 2017 on his website yep. that really got me hooked. And I, 
there was this sense of him exploring the landscape in real time yes. and discovering, or there was an exploratory nature of his way of talking that felt very alive. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 YouTube started playing one of those lectures the other day, and I, I have huge problems with attention span nowadays. Like if I put anything on on Netflix, I'm kind of mm. texting, using my phone. I generally don't get more than like 15 minutes before wanting to turn on to something else. And like this is mm. partly the kind of social media wow, uh, fragmentation yeah. of attention. <laughs> but I was compelled. I, I sat, this was a lecture I'd seen before, and I, I had to kind of force myself to turn it off to go to bed after like 45 minutes. And that was, and that for me is, what I think a lot of people found compelling about Jordan totally. Peterson at that time was this sense of he may be, it may be a monologue, but it doesn't feel like a monologue. Nope. And it, it feels like he, he knows the territory, but he's walking it in real time and telling you what he's seeing rather totally. than just telling you a set of propositional things that he already knows and feel like a lecturer just telling you something. And, and, and the lack of that quality of exploration mm. and aliveness is what I feel most keenly in the culture at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's, that's John Babaki's exploration with Dialogos and yes. um, this sense of how can we go into new territory together, I think is the key question for the 21st century. Beautiful. Beautiful. I couldn't agree more I, at both levels uh, uh, for me in particular, um, uh, Peterson's Bible series was uh, very touching and moving. I, I was, uh, um, I, I felt more and more happy that I had framed my system along these lines in terms of tree knowledge back in the garden, precisely because I thought his uh, enriched exploration of that, his own his own struggle with it, uh, was on display in a very uh, living way, and I deeply appreciated. Uh, that and was moved by it. So uh, I can empathize. And, and I liked his maps of meeting. Um, it's just that I get more technically um, like, well, <laughs> you know, from my own technical vantage point. But I, I thought it was a deep book itself. And then when did you discover that? Was it before he? No, I didn't. Uh, I had inter intersected with some aspects of his big five work. So I knew I'd heard of him, but I didn't know of him until the media phenomenon around. So was he someone who really pushed the big five? forward well his his aspect scale uh, and the work that he did uh, is a is a you know it's a reasonable so big five is a big deal um it's got many different elements he's clearly an expert on big five and i believe that his aspect scale um is a very reasonable tributary in relationship to that and when you what i'm super pressed with with jordan peterson which people don't get in my opinion if you go if you know the field the way i know it when i saw him this is what i was so pissed about with that the people around me. So very, very few people operate at a very high level as a clinician. Okay. Uh, and I sense that he, and I, my style would be different, but I sense that he had a real deep capacity to connect with people as a clinician, as a behavioral scientist, as somebody that fundamentally understands, uh, you know, basic Skinnerian frames of reference, behavioral modification. He's well-versed in that as a personality empiricist, empirical theorist grounded in big five as a personality analytic theorist, especially appreciating Jung, but the whole psychoanalytic tradition and being philosophically grounded in Nietzsche and looking to the culture in a particular kind of way. I mean, that's a, to do that with sophistication and depth and academic integrity and to be a wonderful lecturer. I mean, that man has serious talent and depth 
And anybody that couldn't see that is essentially blind, in my view. I don't care what your political area is. That's a, we want people who take responsibility for what they can know and advance it. And especially his deep concern with totalitarianism and that we're all vulnerable to self-deception and we have a responsibility. I love the man for that. And, and I, I really find that people can't see that. They get so trapped up in, you know, I can debate. I thought he overshot on C-16 and I, I'm definitely far to the left of him in, in my general orientation. Um, but he's an honorable person. And as soon as I saw him, uh, and I thought then I could just say, hey, the people around me, he's like, I have credibility, right? Nope. <laughs> they just get wrapped up in a herd mentality. It's amazing. Um, so, yeah, no, but I saw him in the context of the C-16 battle. That's when uh, he came up really on my radar. And then I got fascinated because I've always been thinking about, well, the left has got to manage uh, the, what's the integrity of social justice issues and what is the hyper progressive histrionic extreme that goes insane, the, the mean green. I've always been tracking this um, issue and been paying attention to it for 30 years. My first intellectual awakening is feminism. So I'm inside the critical race theory and feminist literature. And then I learned where the freaking edge is. And Jordan Peterson's totally right. It's like the left doesn't know where the heck of the edge of this thing is at all. They, they don't know when to, you know, I mean, I get people, you know, it's like I criticize somebody is like, well, you're a white man criticizing a black woman. I'm like, I'm an expert criticizing somebody who's acting histrionic. That's not you can't just take a social category and apply it irrespective of of me and her in the idiosyncratic event. You're just going to apply a social category and then say, well, because of histories of oppression, we already know the outcome about what's appropriate. I mean, that's like that is just categorical insanity. I mean, that's like, but nope. The system itself basically now has swallowed that pill. It's like, we have to see it through social categories first and foremost. And indeed many people just stop there because they're not exactly complicated in the way they metabolize information. But anyway, yeah, so I got, I'm pretty passionate about the whole, like <laughs> what could be when it comes to these kinds of issues. So yeah, I'm, not gonna I'm not gonna disagree with you there. <laughs> so yeah, so my feeling about him was he's doing the left a huge favor. Um, and yet at the same time, they basically also then revealed it's insanity. <laughs> and so I was like, mm. you know, we have to then, you know, and maybe we will be able to figure out how to metabolize it. Um, there's an interesting, there's an interesting, um, self-referential collapse there. I'm not sure what the exact word or term should be, but for you, the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson became a radicalizing event that proved the reality of the thing that he was saying in the first place. Yep. And I think a lot of people had that same experience that it was, and that's, that's why he's such an archetypal figure. Like that's why he, he was the thing that he was talking about. I think in so many different ways, like, when he's talking about the power of Logos, the power of Logos to speak the world into being, he was doing that. And he certainly for that period of time where he, where he, he was just really, really on it. Mm -hmm. Like he just had that kind of, that real congruency between his words and his actions and the way that he was and the way that he was articulating what he was articulating was the thing itself. Totally. And also he became this one man lightning rod of the culture war and and so many people were red pills for want of a better word. They were they realized a, a lot word. of the games that were being played by the media, the games that were being played by um, the kind of social justice left, 
and it exposed all of that in in the whole progression and the whole trajectory of those couple of years in the person of that one man, which w- was extraordinary. I don't, I don't know. I mean, by definition, that is an archetype. That is kind of absolutely the archetypal force of of inhabiting something in the culture that is an incredible thing to hold as well. Oh, God. Um, I know. Obviously, whatever happened to yeah. it physiologically, I mean, the, obviously. The weird, <laughs> oh, and, Jesus. I mean, I, I mentioned before about his philosophy being um, necessary but not sufficient. And I think that what I find, I find it quite peculiar at the moment where he's coming back and claiming that there was no connection between what happened to him and and, and, all, and all of the events that happened to him in terms of that, that position that he occupied in the culture. He still seems to be saying, no, it's just a set of medical co- medical coincidences. And I mean, I don't know. None of us know. None of us are him. But I would, I would hope that he continues to inquire into that trajectory from a position of like, what did I get right? What did I get wrong? What, what was I trying to hold? Um, was it inevitable what happened Given, given that, I don't, I, and I don't know. I think he, only he can probably answer those. But I am, I'm a he's little saying, surprised by the, by, a, but what I sense at the moment, and maybe he's just too vulnerable to go there. But, but it seems obvious to me that there's more to the story than. Yeah, I, I, I haven't tracked him super carefully since he's come back. Um, I've listened to a few things. Uh, I heard him. I think it was Brett. Uh, he and Brett talking on one of their podcasts. I think his. And Brett was talking to him sort of about this. And I was struck by, and I get it some from a clinical perspective about how he's going to try to compartmentalize. Um, and obviously the stuff with his wife and everything else is a very strong physiological, biophysiological reality. Um, and that layer cannot be uh, disconnected. But from the outside perspective, at least, uh, the idea that he sort of was a circuit that got overheated and blew um, is a metaphor that from a social force external perspective just seems uh, almost observational uh, at that level. And then when he was trying to narrate what it all made sense and how I was like, ooh, Jordan, given how smart you are, you, the shallowness with which you were able to narrate that, um, well, as well, let's just say my little psychodynamic meter went, huh? <laughs> mm. and and I mean, that, that comes on the comes on the radar a bit but i, I mean this, know, i certainly wish him the best but you know like, oh yeah it. without doubt I mean, i'm not I saying yourself of course you know i'm just yeah i feel like, a real sense know. of warmth towards him and yep. um especially what he went through over the last couple of years um what i mean this and this may be a sort of simplistic perspective but my take on it is that the archetypal force that he was carrying as well as as well as kind of much else to do with the kind of mythos was the kind of last gasp of the heroic individual. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like he was articulating that heroic individual perspective nice. to its fullest in a way, ah. mm-hmm. but, but in it, it, it is not sufficient. There is a pl- I think there is a place beyond the individual and, it, and his, his way of being in the world was very much a kind of mano a mano style it was not dear logos like he was very much i will take all comers mm-hmm. and he did for 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 quite a long time in a in a really impressive way but it was not really a kind of let's work together on articulating more and it, and it was not really pushing beyond what he'd already worked out and what he'd already understood right and so 
and the, the big question for me now is whether he, whether we're right to look to him and hope, expect, want him to now enter into those kind of more generative conversations with others, mm-hmm. or whether we the the right thing is to is to say thank you and look beyond to those who might be articulating something that was not included in the kind of Peterson perspective. I mean, we could certainly hope. I think it does. I think you uh, nicely characterized uh, what I see. Uh, that's a patterning that I see also. Um, yeah, I, th- I, you know, the, it, I'll just reiterate. I think that, you know, his frame is that. I mean, he built his entire professional identity. He gets lots of people looking up to him. Um, there aren't too many people that can just enter into his system and say, all right, Jordan, I know exactly where you're coming from. And this is where you're wrong. <laughs> You know, in a particular way that is specific, some people could, <laughs> but not uh, lots of people. Uh, and that would that would need to be done and done in a way that he would be then open and receptive to, and would have to be very clear. Um, and given what's happened to him and his structure, that m- there will be a lot of inertia that would prevent that. I can hope that. And all, uh, and also now, unfortunately, by the nature of the of the kind of landscape, there are financial incentives for that. Not well, that's happen. the whole, that's all part of the social force capture, right? That these things, that they occupy particular kinds of what uh, large scale systems of justification and investment uh, that then are positioned in the influence man's landscape against other positions. And then there's all of this inertia that gets that not just in the man, but then in, that's why we can't be hyper-individualistic because we're all noted and networked into information energy flows <laughs> that then channel us in particular structures. And it's good to be cognizant of that, but anyway, yeah. So um, one of that does, uh, when you, uh, if we then shift a little bit, maybe of the focus uh, to you and your unique vision of the past landscape that brings us up to sort of where we are. And as you look to the future, are you seeing a lot of hopeful things? What are you seeing in relationship? I mean, we've had, we certainly threaded some of these ideas about what might happen next, um, but I'm really curious to get your uh, perspective on what you see uh, in the sh- at least the short term emerging or what you're hopeful or afraid of or anything along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is quite a hopeful time in that I see I see more cross-pollination between different um, communities. Mm-hmm. I think that the removal of I think the re- <laughs> there's a clarity that there's certainly dangers, but I I sense a clarity because Trump for me was a kind of distraction from the necessary conflict that needed to happen, which was essentially a civil war within the left. Mm. Like. And I think that confused the landscape quite a bit because it was very easy then to be sort of framed as well. Are you on this side or you're supporting Trump or you're, you're, you're sounding an awful lot like a Trump supporter or whatever. And I think, and this is a framing that uh, Brett and Eric, for example, have always said, it's like, this is, this, the con, the, the real split is on the left. It's between people who realize the danger of extreme social justice ideology and those who mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of the heat is. That's why Barry Weiss, for example, was such a yep. hated figure at the New York Times and was forced out. And mm-hmm. that that is the most, the most um, 
a live part of the culture war landscape right now is actually there because it's not really the conservatives versus the left. It's the people on the left who realize the danger and they're the ones where, that, that are under the most, they're the biggest threat to the kind of monolithic worldview of the mm -hmm. extreme social justice types. I certainly so, felt that <laughs> front and center. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of us have probably experienced that personally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and realize how easily that kind of social justice perspective is weaponized and used against you. Mm. And so I see, I see a sense of clarity now that the Trump is gone. I felt this sense of, I probably held it at least a kind of 25% possibility that there was going to be some kind of civil war, mm. um, that, that the acceleration of the intensity was going to continue and continue. Yep. And I certainly don't feel that. So I feel like a sense of relief and a sense of clarity and a sense of possible, yeah, the, the fight that was being put off and distracted and kind of weaponized and exploited by Trump as his kind of carnival barker. Like Trump, Trump exploited the, the dislike that a lot of people had of the liberal worldview yep. that essentially was, was a kind of chancer. Mm -hmm. Now I think those, those difficult definitions need to be made. Those difficult conversations had to be, ha have to be had. And it matters now. Yeah. Th this, this is where I think the, the interest lies. And then I think finding the, finding the right allies, reaching out to people who also recognize this. Um, and I've certainly had the experience over the last few years that people who are maybe didn't understand my political shifts or my kind of uh -huh. my shifts in terms of what I was paying attention to right. now very much do because they've had their experience of mm. being attacked in an organization or being yep. kind of, uh -huh. yeah, that, I, I don't think, I think most people realize that danger. So I think in a way, um, yeah, I feel like we're in a fundamentally different place. Let's put it yes. that way. Yeah. Um, and I'm not yet sure exactly what that place is. Right. I, th I think it's one of confusion. I, I also breathe the huge sigh of relief that we avoided. Uh, I think that if, it, if, if the system had, it was vulnerable enough so that if the system had all come down to say Georgia itself, and for the Electoral College, uh, I mean, I think the thing might have just gone. I mean, we really that's how close potentially we were to uh, a genuine uh, de-evolution and destructive, uh, a genuinely destructive force. So my heart beat it quite rapidly at multiple times during as an American <laughs> being stuck here. But there was obviously world ramifications. So um, and yes, I think that that we are now. Um, hopefully we have then enough structural stability at the base level of living uh, and are then also creating these kinds of spaces that enable us to actually talk through. I mean, I've never voted for a Republican. I mean, I don't mean that meanly. I, I like a, I, I, and I believe fundamentally in effective opponent process. I want to look at Republicans and, and have a I look. That's why I can respect somebody like Jordan Peterson, you know, he's a Republican or whatever, but has a conservative sensibility in a particular way that I am. Uh, I'm much more, what are the social forces that impair individuals and how do we create? And I heard him talking, you know, Brett, and he uh, kind of got into some of the conversation about the dialectic between uh, liberal and conservative sensibilities. And I, that's the, that I, I very much appreciated that version of the conversation. 
um, or, or aspect. And I believe that that's our task, right? Our task is, and that's why the rebel wisdom space is so beautiful, right? I mean, that's a, that is a space for us to come together to dialogue and then wonder about dialogos in relationship to what can we create together? The shared uh, systems of understanding, the shared narratives, the shared sense-making that we're in this time between worlds and we're now at a process to reconstitute um, you know, the soul and spirit in the 21st century. I mean, that's, that's what I hope for us to be. And you're saying you feel, do you feel optimistic about that or pessimistic or we'll see both? <laughs> I'm an eternal optimist. Okay. All right. I think it's, I, I think it, yeah, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist and I, I don't really see any reason to be anything else. Mm. Like I don't, I don't believe just on a fundamental level, I just do not believe that we've come this far to fail. Mm-hmm. I think the process of mm-hmm. ultimately what we've done by creating this globalized society is we've we've kind of globalized risk, as I'm mm-hmm. a lot of people like yep. Daniel Schmachtenberger and, and others will kind of talk about. But at the same time, we've also globalized. We now have access to every possible idea right. that ever existed as well. Yep. And so I, I think we'll make it. I think we'll, I think we maybe will need a kind of near-death experience. But if you didn't think it was actually likely to happen, then would it be a near-death experience? I don't know. Right. J- Jamie Wheel articulated it really beautifully. It's like, can you have that? Can you have that experience where you see the ending, but then you come back and you put your shoulder to the wheel? Mm. Because ultimately, it's only fifty-one percent that we need. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That that's my sense too. I mean, that's my, I'm fundamentally optimistic. I do. And I mean, by 51%, I mean sort of light versus dark. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Not that only 51% of us will survive. That's, that's <laughs> no, not, that would be, that would be kind of a failure. I mean, that know, would be shitty. Someone, that would be pretty bad if we go down to 4 billion. <laughs> yeah. That would be painful. <sighs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, one uh, maybe final kind of question in terms of what, um, I know one of the things that you're really exploring in terms of, you know, sort of your journalistic growth is, you know, issues of free speech and sort of the what is happening in relationship to the space in terms of communication. How do we get uh, what is the right uh, frequency of sort of the media and and in terms of how to relate to kind of these spaces? I'd I'd love to get some of your thinking, at least, or or reflections. I know you interviewed trigonometry people and um, and just your philosophy of journalism these days and how it's informing uh, your life and work. Um, I definitely wanted to touch on that before we wrapped up. So I'll cycle back to that if you, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I, I guess my, I mean, my concern as I think most, most of the people that we've interviewed who are really focused on the information landscape, my concern is like the fragmentation Mm. of the information ecology and the the epistemic commons Mm. and what we might even begin to do about that. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. That's a beautiful phrase. Mm -hmm. Since the beginning of the pandemic, especially just seeing all of these different narrative bubbles and ecosystems arriving and just no sense of the meeting in any meaningful way. Uh So you have all of these different perspectives um, 
that are critical of the of the the kind of the dominant mainstream narratives i don't think are being checked mm. so i think you've got this system uh, the system that is fundamentally broken down where different narratives the mainstream is still trying to play the game of gatekeeping out things that it doesn't want okay mm-hmm. but i don't think that's going to work anymore i think we're right. going to have to deal with the, the floodgates have already been opened, so we're going to have to address and to deal with and interrogate ideas that may have been beyond the pale in the past. Mm. And mm-hmm. things like, yeah, and I, I, I just don't see a functioning system for dealing with that because of lots of different reasons. Mainstream journalists terrified of platforming people mm-hmm. who are discredited or mm-hmm. showing... Like a, a good example is the lab leak hypothesis mm. story, right. which is one that I, I mean, I have to say I don't know, but mm-hmm. I think it's gone from being a fringe conspiracy theory to being something that many people are taking very seriously. I've heard that. Um, someone like Brett obviously has put a lot of time and energy in, in talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see those narratives really being, I don't, and then in the legacy media, there's this perspective of this is just a conspiracy theory. Why do right. people talk about it? And I've been trying to do a film about that mm. because it's one of those things that I think mm. one of these narratives that is just not right. The, the two epistemic bubbles are not meeting. Mm. And when I speak to people who've got the legacy view, they can't understand why they should even talk about it. It's obviously untrue. Mm. And on the other side, are convinced that it that it is true. I've invited Brett to come on and talk about it, and he he's up for it. Okay, but mm. I'm struggling to find someone from the kind of mainstream legacy, legacy. position who's willing to come on and, and talk about it. Okay, um, mm-hmm. and yes, yeah, so I'm using that as a kind of case study to look at. It's a beautiful case study. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I I I personally. Yeah, I've got my views and, and whether I think it's more or less likely, but I, I'm perfectly happy to accept that I've only looked at it very briefly and I'll try and make sense of it as someone who's, um, but with someone with no medical training, no kind right. of training in virology <laughs> or anything like that. So I'm starting as most people are. And I just don't see, there's all of these questions of like how these truth claims are checked, who we trust, the breakdown in authority in so many different ways. And I think this kind of gets to the heart of it because you've got mm. the narrative that it's not true. And then how much do you trust the WHO? How much are they in hop to China? Like all of these different, all of how corrupted is, right? how corrupted is the world really is a question. Right. Absolutely. And as a, as a football fan who saw the last World Cups awarded to Russia and to Qatar, mm. you could make a strong argument for saying, yeah, it's all pretty fucked. Like mm. that's how... That's how bad it's got where there's, come on, Qatar of all places. Like that was a total stitch up Hmm. for one of the most hyper, one of the most, Uh and the Olympics is is like these, these immensely powerful, these immensely important kind of big sporting events. Right. Like that's a window into just how bad things have got Hmm. for something like that to happen, I think. Hmm. Um, so it's like, well, is that the case with the UN? Is that the case with the WHO? Is that the case with, right. like, how broken are our institutions really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah. Big questions. <laughs> That's a beautiful question for a journalist. Absolutely. And, and beautiful. I really like it. I hope uh, that that uh, uh, materializes. That'd be a fascinating conversation. And, and certainly uh, I found myself wondering about the, the virus in the lab hypothesis along those lines and would love to, you know, get into some of the more weeds along those lines. Is there anything that you'd like to talk with me about as we begin to, you know, get to the nearly uh, the 90 minute marker uh, along these lines? Um, I mean, there's so much more we could go into. I mean, <laughs> but let's, um, let's do it again sometime. Oh, fantastic. I'd love that. Um, so, uh, I'll put some things in the show notes if you'd like, in terms of, I, I'm guessing people, certainly in my little venue will know you and where to find you, but is there anything in particular that you'd like me to, uh, let people know where to reach out to you or find you? Uh, maybe if you put, yeah, I mean, Twitter's obviously probably the best. Okay. Um, my DMs are open on Twitter. If you want to put in my personal website as well, people who maybe know me more through Rebel Wisdom might not know the my background in uh, news and current affairs and there's right. some links to previous pieces that I've done in there. Right. So people the can... BBC world, huh? <laughs> yeah. BBC and channel four. Right. Right. Okay. We'll do that. David, thank you so much. Uh, it's yeah. been very enlightening. I'll thank you again for all of your uh, crucial work in this space. It's been certainly influential in my life and uh, in a very good way. So I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. So all thanks, right. Greg. Take care.